0: Uh, let me mention a couple things I forgot to point out. One, for you vintage Edgewood members, we have over here seated to my right Ray and Shawa, all right? If you don't know who Ray and Gaynel Shawa are, you're not a vintage member. That's okay. You don't make yourself vintage, you become vintage, all right? But some of you are vintage, and you know who we're talking about. So if you have an opportunity, you might want to see them before uh, you. And then the second thing, on a, uh, a different note, I meant to mention that um, we were able to finalize a schedule for uh, J.T. Overby coming on, uh, starting his work here as pastoral ministry here at Edgewood. His first Sunday uh, here at Edgewood will be on July 18th. Uh, We will recognize him and his family in that service uh, to pray over him and to essentially uh, say, okay, here it is, it's official, here's one of your pastors who are now laboring and serving you, and then he'll start actually that week, uh, Monday the 19th will be uh, his first day at the office. So, just wanted to give you an update on that and to let you know what we're moving towards. Okay, turning your Bibles to Genesis. Chapter 32. Last week we, were, we covered 32, 1 through 21, which is Jacob uh, on his return to the Promised Land. He had been in a state of essentially exile for 20 years because... 20 years ago, he had deceived and tricked his father into giving him the blessing that Esau was trying to get. Esau swore that he would kill Jacob for that. So Jacob's mother says, you need to get out of here to save your own life. Jacob flees. He goes to Haran where he meets up with Laban. He, In his time of exile over a period of 20 years, he goes through a painful process of conflict and confrontation, and yet, having arrived with absolutely nothing. When the Lord comes and says, okay, now it's time for you to go back to return home, Jacob turns to leave, and he leaves with his arms full of God's blessings, not just in terms of family, but also in terms of possessions as well. It is evident that God has blessed him. That said, chapter 32 is a reminder of the fact that although Jacob has been given freedom now to return from exile and to leave the Laban years behind him, as he turns to go back home, ultimately what he is turning to now is his brother Esau. That issue still has not been resolved, and when Jacob hears that Esau is actually on his way to meet him with 400 men traveling with him, Jacob is terrified. And last week, the point that we tried to drive home was that Jacob had every opportunity to find his security and rest in two things. Number one, the presence of God. That came through in the angelic vision. Number two, the promises of God. When Jacob prays in chapter 32 at verses 9 through 12, he repeats the fact that what Jacob is doing right now, what he is doing right now is nothing less than obedience to the command of the Lord and that if he is going to obey, the Lord must protect him and must do that if he's going to be good to his promises. You can't let Esau snuff me out, otherwise all these promises to bless me and to fill me and to give me uh, nations who come after me is going to go to naught. So, we get towards the end of the passage that we had last week, and although he was able to rest, he still seems to be somewhat on the fearful side. And the way that that is demonstrated in the text, when you skip, when you go down to verses 20 and 21, we mention that although we don't pick up on it in the English, that in the, in the Old Testament Hebrew, the word face appears five times in verses 20 and 21. So, let me, let me start there to sort of wrap up this introduction before we read our passage for this morning and pray. So in 32:20 Jacob after telling his servants to go and to give gifts to Esau and to say that Jacob is coming behind us says this in verse 20 he says for Jacob said I will appease him that is I will cover his face is the sort of very stiff Hebrew translation I will cover his face with the present that goes before my face Then afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will raise or lift my face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before his face while he himself spent that night in the camp. And the interpretation that we brought to bear on the repetition of face in those two verses is to say that it seems that what we're to conclude or draw from this is that no matter what kind of assurance Jacob has received from the Lord, seeing this camp of angels along with his camp, along with the promises of God that he's able to claim and pray and find assurance in, that Jacob still is fearful of meeting and facing up to his brother. So having said that, being fearful to meet his brother face to face, We pick up at verse 22, Now Jacob arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So, the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, "'Let me go, for the dawn is breaking.' But he said, "'I will not let you go unless you bless me.' So he said to him, "'What is your name?' And he said, "'Jacob.' He said, "'Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed.' Then Jacob asked him and said, "'Please tell me your name.' But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Peniel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. This odd, strange passage is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you that for all those whom you call according to your purpose, that you have guaranteed to prepare us, and to make us fit for your kingdom. That preparation and that time of training is not always enjoyable. It is often painful, but we know that it's for our good. Help us to see that in this record of your dealing with Jacob and to be able to see how you deal with your people along these same lines, not only in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but even here today for the people here in this sanctuary. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who gives us understanding and who convicts us of the truth of your Word. And it's because of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. In some, this, this odd little passage of Jacob wrestling with who later comes across as God and getting a new name seems somewhat odd, seems somewhat fanciful, but ultimately the way that this fits into the Jacob story or the storyline of Genesis is that because Jacob has fled and has been in a 20-year period of exile and is now being brought back to the promised land, he finds himself, we discover in this text, at the Jabbok River, which is sort of on the fringe or on the edge of the promised land. And the point or the the theme of this passage seems to be that as the Lord is bringing Jacob back to the promised land, as He is restoring him and bringing him back home, there's a sense in which in order to get Jacob ready to come back home, Jacob needs to be changed. And so, if Jacob embodies essentially the nation of Israel which of course He does, in part that's why He's given this new name. And if God deals with Jacob as He deals with Israel, as He deals with us, His people in this church age, we ought to consider then that one of the things that God does consistently and faithfully for His people whom He calls to Himself, the thing that God does for the people who have His promises and who are assured of His blessings, is that God is certain and determined to change us into people who are able to fit the blessing and the inheritance that He has in store for us. All right, if you don't get anything else in this passage, understand that's what's going on here. Jacob in this encounter, on the front end of this encounter, is not the kind of man that God wants him to be. Jacob is not the kind of man that God would have to be the bearer or the carrier of His promises for the nations. Jacob, in his basic, fundamental nature, is not a good fit for what God has called him to, and so God in his faithfulness, doesn't cast Jacob off, but rather changes Jacob so that he will fit God's purposes. And so, if you understand that, it's then a little bit easier to make the transition to application to see the relevance that this passage has for us, because the fact of the matter is all of us are ultimately moving towards the inheritance that God has laid up for us, We have great and tremendous promises, blessings that we have not even yet begun to experience that God is holding out at a distance saying, I'm bringing you along the way and I'm going to get you home. I'll get you across the river. But in order for you to be able to step in and enjoy those promises and those blessings, you can't stay the way that you are right now. I've got to do something. I've got to change you. So let me show you the way that this works out or the way that it plays itself out in this passage. I'm going to try to walk through this passage, uh, not necessarily covering every detail, but trying to, to key in on the emphasis or the idea of uh, of a name being given. All right, so the first thing that we're going to do, we're going to look at the new name that is given to Jacob. That's in verses 24 through 28. The second, second point we're going we're to make is we're, or observation is we're going to take notice of the fact that God's name is withheld. He gives Jacob a name, but he withholds his own name when Jacob wants to know it. So, Jacob gets a new name, and then in verse 29, God withholds his own name. And then number three, if we have time and if we're able to get to it, Jacob names the place where he meets with God. That's verses 30 through 32. All right, so just as as a way to hopefully help orient us to what's going on with the passage, we're going to pay pay special attention to the idea of names that, that go on here, all right? So, number one, Jacob is given a new name. The way that this scenario plays out is that Jacob, fearful of an imminent or what he thinks may be an imminent attack from his brother with 400 men, in the middle of the night decides that he's going to do a river crossing with his wives and his young children and all the possessions that he has. He's going to send them across the river to try to provide some sort of natural defense or barrier so that either by sneak attack at night or by attack first thing in the morning, there is some protection that Jacob has for his people. So, Jacob does that. He sends everyone across and then somehow or in some way, Jacob ends up on the other side of the river by himself. He's isolated. Everyone else has left him and he's alone in the dark on the original side of the river, everyone else being more safely placed on the other side. And in his isolation, in his solitude, in the dark, he's attacked by an unknown assailant. He doesn't know who it is that he's encountered. And he wrestles and he enters into this struggle with this individual for an extended period of time. Let me me just say here, before we get to the name, don't miss the fact that one of the things that the author does when he describes this event is that he tells us the story in such a way that we can experience it the way that Jacob would have experienced it. And by that I mean this, we know by the time we, we spend 60 seconds reading this passage, we get from beginning to end very quickly, and we know that this unknown person that Jacob is wrestling with turns out to be the Lord Himself. right? In the beginning in verse 24, the author could have written verse 24 this way. He could have said, then Jacob was left alone and God wrestled with him. But he doesn't. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him. I think the reason that he does that is because The author wants the reader, wants us as the audience to understand something of the confusion and the mystery that Jacob is encountering. And the way that things play out is Jacob engages in this this conflict, in this wrestling match with someone that he thinks is his equal or a human aggressor and then only slowly begins to realize when his hip is dislocated. That this is not a normal conflict. This is not a normal person that I am locked in this struggle with. And by the time we get to the end, as the, the day is breaking, it's, it's dark. He's wrestling in the dark. It's almost poetic the way that, that the story is told. He's wrestling in the dark, and as day begins to dawn, it begins to dawn on Jacob, who it is, that he's in conflict with. He's wrestling with someone who is not human. And whoever this person is that he's wrestling with who is not human has not only the power to dislocate his hip with a touch, he also, in Jacob's mind, has the ability to bless him in a way that no other human could potentially bless him. That's why Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go till you bless me. The simple point is this, before we get to the naming, I don't think that it's coincidental that Jacob enters into this wrestling thinking that he is wrestling with a man and then only afterwards begins to realize, no, I'm wrestling with God, because I think that's the story of Jacob's life. From the very beginning, Jacob is born into this world Grabbing onto his twin brother's heel. No, no, no. Let's even back up before that. Before he comes out the chute, grabbing onto his brother's heel, he and his brother are banging away at each other in their mother's womb, right? You remember that? Rebecca calls out to the Lord, if I'm pregnant, why am I in this way? Oh, this agony. Two nations are in your womb and they're struggling together. Conflict before he even drew his first breath. Esau and Jacob are born. Jacob comes out grabbing onto his brother's heel as if to try to replace his brother and to beat him out as the firstborn. Jacob trades his brother Esau's birthright in a moment of Esau's weakness for a bowl of stew. And then later, when Isaac, their aging blind father, is about to bless Esau, Jacob goes in and deceives his blind old father and creates a whole mess of conflict in the dysfunction that comes into the family. And then in exile, Jacob goes and he finds more conflict when he goes in to live with Uncle Laban. It's a battle of shrewd minds and wills and deceivers who are trying to get the better of one another. Jacob has spent his entire life wrestling with men to try to win what he wants, what he thinks he needs. Now, in one sense, some of Jacob's wrestling is good wrestling, at least in the sense that he is wrestling for the good things, namely the blessing. The problem is which is very similar to us, we can wrestle for, strive for the right things, but do it in the absolute worst way. In this case, then, what is going to be brought home to Jacob is something along the lines, I think, of this, Jacob, this entire time, you think that you have been wrestling with your brother, your father, your uncle, your wives, your co-workers. Jacob, all this time you have been wrestling with those people and you didn't realize that the person that you were wrestling with was me. Jacob, if you didn't try to make things happen yourself, if you could just take my word and just rest and let me do the work of fulfilling my promises, let me give you the blessing, you would not have to wrestle the way that you have spent your life wrestling. You would not have to enter into conflict with people everywhere that you turn. So I wonder then if even in this initial setup, this dawning on Jacob that who he really is wrestling with is the Lord, that that's really where the wrestling match takes place. I wonder if in some way that isn't also instructive for us. Men, you think That you are wrestling with your wife and you're not. You're wrestling with the Lord. Women, you think you're wrestling with your husband and you're not. You're wrestling with the Lord. Parents, you think that you're wrestling with your kids and you're not. Kids, you think you're wrestling with your parents. You're not. It's your sinful nature, it's my sinful tendency that is being pushed to the forefront that causes me to see other people as a threat to my happiness, people that I have to wrestle with. And that I have to beat and that I have to get ahead of in order to get what God says He's going to freely give me. He will give me peace and security and joy and happiness and contentment, all these things. I don't have to go out and try to wrestle it away from somebody else. When I don't have those things, it's not because someone else is taking it from me. It's because rather than sitting and listening and receiving and submitting to what it is that the Lord is doing, I think that I have to go out and win a wrestling match with God when God is saying, if you would just let me do my work, it would be much better for you. Now, this is not to say, please don't misunderstand, this is not to say that we don't face real genuine oppo- opposition or conflict from people who are opposed to us. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. I'm not trying to say that we need to have some sort of hyper, over-realized spirituality where we, you know, don't see anything in the, in the natural world, but everything is, right, some sort of spirit or vision or something like that. But what I am saying is that in every single conflict that we engage in, There is ultimately at root a conflict between me, a fallen but redeemed sinner, and God who wants to sanctify me and purify me and make me ready to enter into unending reward as a mature son of the Father. Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against spiritual powers and authorities. We wrestle, we struggle with our own sinful tendencies. But how good and gracious God is to let the light dawn on His people after years of struggling, that the Lord in His goodness and kindness will finally clue a thick-headed person like me in and say, Merritt, you have been missing it this whole time. You think you're wrestling with the wrong people. You're wrestling with me. So Jacob is wrestling. He gets to a point where Jacob understands that he is not going to be able to win. This conflict. It's hard to wrestle when your hip is out of joint. I don't know from experience, I just hear that. Jacob is reduced to a position where he has no leverage on his assailant, he has no way that he's going to gain the upper hand, and Jacob is reduced to clinging to. This person who has just wounded him. And so, in verses 24 through 28, skip down with me to verse 26, the man, supposedly, that Jacob is locked in battle with says, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So the man says, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. But then his assailant says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. We ought to point out two things here. Number one, remember that particularly in the ancient Near East or in the Old Testament, names are usually far more significant in that historical cultural context than what it is in ours. Someone, Someone else has said, I wish I could give give credit where credit is due, but someone has said, in the ancient Near East, you didn't have a name, you were your name. So, when this unknown mystery person Ask Jacob, what is your name? Part of the play here is that the stronger is asking the weaker to identify yourself, not in terms of what do people call you. Tell me who you are. Tell me what you are like. And Jacob has to confess, I am Jacob. I am a heel grabber. I am a supplanter, I am an overreacher, I am a deceiver, that's me. You get that? Who are you? What is your name? This is my name. And it's not very flattering. To which the mystery individual comes back and says, not anymore. that is not who you are anymore. You are no longer deceiver and supplanter and overreacher. You are now Israel. You are someone who has strived with God and with man and have prevailed. Don't miss the significance of what's going on here with this name change. When God changes Jacob's name, God is essentially letting Jacob know that I am changing your path and your destination. I'm changing the whole course of your life. You used to walk in this manner, but now you will walk in that manner. You used to be identified this way, you now will be identified that way. Now, don't don't oh, what overassume? Is that a word? Okay? Oh, Jim said it's okay. Don't overassume. Don't assume too much. When he gets this new name, that does not mean that at that very instant Jacob will always live up to that name. It also does not mean that any time that someone, some third party happens to see Jacob, that they will automatically see no longer Jacob, but Israel. Listen, the fact of the matter is, Jacob still has a lot of struggling to do. He's got a lot of imperfections and he's got a lot of conflict and misery that he's still going to encounter, that the Lord is going to use to purify him and to test him and to reveal his faithfulness to Jacob. But at the end of the day, even though Jacob may not be instantly transformed, the entire direction of his life has changed. And listen, Edgewood, you need to know that that's what God does with you as well. Our encounter with God at the very beginning is a conflict of two wills who want to win. I want to dominate. I want to choose how my life is going to go. I want my will to reign supreme. And it's God in His mercy and in His goodness that overpowers me and shows that it is His will that will carry the day, not mine. But part of the way that God makes me to know and understand that is He calls on me to confess my name. Who are you? Well, I'm a sinner. I'm a cheat. I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm prideful. I'm boastful. I'm selfish, I lust, to which the Lord says, no more. That was the direction of your life. That was the name that was fitting to you. That was the overall character and direction and orientation of your life, but no more. And He gives me and He gives you a new name. He calls us the children of God. So that John says in the New Testament, Behold what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And then he tacks on for emphasis, and we are. He calls us saints. He calls us righteous. Does that mean that when He gives us these new names and titles, that every waking minute of our day looks like those titles in practice? Certainly not. But what it does mean is that by God's grace and by His power, that there is a decisive break that has been made with my past and your past, and that because of the power of God and His faithfulness to work in us, that the overall direction and course of our life is moving in a new way. Sometimes that new direction Traveling that course is painfully slow, but we're still moving in a new direction. And God shows over and over and over again. That the way that he loves to work is that he loves to take someone who is not deserving of his mercy and grace, who is not deserving of his kindness and his reward. He loves to take that person and give them a new name, give them a new future, and then bit by bit, gradually, so that they are always dependent upon him, he says, now I will turn you into what I call you. That's the whole balance between the doctrines of justification and sanctification. God in the act of justification pronounces over you that you are right as it, cont- or as it pertains to your standing with the Lord. The problem is, is that at any given moment of the day when you look at yourself, you know that you're not right. But because God has called you righteous, Sanctification comes in, and he says, and because I have called you righteous, I will make you righteous. And little by little, slowly but surely, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, God is making and molding you into a person who looks like the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So, Jacob gets a new name that says... This is a man who strives with men and with God and prevails. I want to to key in on the idea of Jacob striving with God. It's a bit out of place because the wrestling or the striving that Jacob has had with God to this point in this episode has not shown Jacob to be victorious over God, right? His hip is dislocated. He's clinging like a frantic little child, afraid of being thrown into the deep end of the pool to the Lord, begging that God would bless him. Does that sound like, look like someone who has wrestled with God and won? Hold your place here and go to Hosea chapter 12. this word that's used in Genesis to say that you strive with God, it shows up only one other place in the Old Testament, and that's in Hosea chapter 12. Hosea chapter 12, pick up with me at verse 3. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. Who is that talking about? Jacob. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his maturity, he contended. That's the same Hebrew word. He contended. He strove. He wrestled with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. And then notice this next part. That describes how he prevailed. He wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. How do you wrestle with God and win? You weep and you beg. That's how you win. You cling to the Lord and you say, at this particular moment, nothing in my life looks like what You say about me, but I've got nowhere else to go. So I'm clinging like grim death to You, Lord, and I am begging You. To bless me so that I will know that you are at work within me to will and to do your good pleasure. And you cling and you beg and you pray and that's how you win. You will not, you will not wrestle a blessing out of God's hand. You can't take from God what he is not willing to give. But God is willing to give what we ask for. So that again in 1 John, John says this is the confidence that we have with him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, we know that we have what we ask for. So Jacob gets a new name to say that Jacob, at this moment, as you're on the verge of entering into the promised land, of getting back home, you need to understand that you can't go back. You can't enter in to this land. You can't enter in fully into my promises and remain the man that you've been up to this point. You have to change, and I'll do that. I'm not going to change my promises, I'm not going to change my plan to fit you, I'm going to change you to fit my plans and my promises." So after that, point number two, we get to God withholding His own name. In verse 29, Jacob does something that is very practical, makes perfect sense. This guy has declared that I'm a new person. This individual has shown that he is no mere human. Who is this person? And so in verse 29, Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. It's an odd response, isn't it? Just for the sake of time, let me try to simplify it for us. Usually there are two ways that people approach this. When the Lord responds to Jacob's request that the Lord give Jacob his name, like, okay, well, who are you now? Will you tell me who you are? One way to look at the question, why do you ask my name? Some people think that this is a very sort of kind, gentle way that the Lord is saying to Jacob, Jacob, do you you still not know who I am? Why, why are you asking for my name? Don't you know who I am? Right? So, it would be like if, a, if my phone rings and I pick up the phone and I'm three or four minutes into a conversation with this lovely feminine voice that makes my heart flutter, and then three or four minutes in and I say, now who is this again? Uh, it's your wife right? Why, why are you asking for my name? Don't you know by now who I am? Right? That could be it. Or it could be more on the corrective side, where the Lord is, is telling Jacob, well, Jacob, that's not really the issue here. Why are you asking for my name? That's not the way that this works. And I think it's probably more the latter. I don't think that Jacob is necessarily being rebuked in some sort of heavy-handed way, but I think what's happening is this. Jacob has spent his entire life trying to get what he wants, trying to have his needs and his desires satisfied, whether that's in a good way or a bad way, or satisfied with good things or not so good things. And Jacob naturally has his curiosity stoked. He wants to know the name, the nature of this person who he has encountered. But because the Lord comes back and says, why are you asking for my name? This is a way for the Lord to remind Jacob again, okay, Jacob, don't forget the order here. I can ask of you anything that I want. But you don't get to ask of me whatever you want. Hold your place here and go to Exodus chapter 33. Let me show you another way that I think this idea comes out. Exodus chapter 33, pick up at verse 19. I'm sorry, verse 18. Exodus thirty-three eighteen. 18. This is Moses on the mountain with the Lord. And read with me Exodus 33, 18 to 19. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Now, listen, don't, don't miss this. What is it that Jacob is asking for? What, what does Jacob want to know? What is your name? Who are you? What are you like? Does the Lord give it to him? No. But the Lord does give him a blessing even though He doesn't reveal His name. Then we come to Exodus 33. Moses wants to know something of who Moses gets something here that Jacob was not privileged to get. But do you, did you hear the last statement that's made in Exodus thirty 19, I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I show compassion. In other words, I think this is the way that things are working for Jacob in chapter 32 and the way that things work for Moses on the mountain. The Lord's Essentially, you can ask whatever you want, but understand, I'm not bound to grant your request. I bless, but I bless out of my free will and kindness and grace. In this instance, Jacob wants to know something that God is not willing to give him at this particular point in time. Later in God's dealings with His people, He will give to Moses what Jacob wanted but was not allowed to have. But even when he is giving this gift of additional revelation and insight into the nature and person of God, God still wants to make Moses understand, okay, but Moses, even though I'm granting your request, you need to understand, I will be merciful and compassionate to who I will be merciful and compassionate to. I don't owe you anything. I give to you freely, but not because I'm some genie in a bottle so that if you just use the magic words, I bend to your every whim. But here's the wonder in all of this. Jacob wants to know who it is that he has encountered, and the Lord refrains from giving him additional insight. No, Jacob, what you have right now is sufficient. You don't need any more than that. Moses asked for more insight into the glory and the nature of God, and God says, I will give you a measure of that knowledge and insight. The New Testament comes along to say what all of these people got glimpses of, we see with stunning clarity. Listen to what a man by the name of Ed Clowney said, comparing Jacob's experience here in chapter 32 with what God has done for us. He says this, the name of the Lord is too wonderful for Jacob's ears. The face of the Lord is too glorious for Jacob's eyes. Yet, the Lord Himself comes that Jacob may know Him. You feel that awkwardness? He wants to make Himself known to Jacob, but only so far. He can't give him too much. His coming to Jacob anticipated his coming to us. Jacob saw the face of the Lord, but dimly. We see. We see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jacob asked for God's own name. We are baptized into the name of the triune God. Through the name of Jesus, exalted above every name, we bear the name of Almighty God as our Heavenly Father. If you belong to the Father because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you have the knowledge of the nature of God in a way that would make Jacob envious you have seen the glory and the nature of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And by the way, there's a certain certain sense in which even though we see better than what Jacob saw, we still do not see as well as what we one day will see, right? Our experience is still very much like Jacob's where we're asking to know and to see more and God says, it's not time for that just yet. Listen, It's okay if as God is changing you and working on you, it's okay if you don't understand every single thing about who God is and what He's like. He's not asking you or expecting you to know all the ins and outs. He's asking you to trust Him. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that right now we see as in a mirror dimly. But then, when that day comes, how will we see? How does the rest of the verse go? Face to face. We know that when He comes, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. Last point. God blesses Jacob by giving him a new name, a new destiny, a new orientation to his life, a new direction that he will set Jacob on. He makes it clear to Jacob that although he is giving him this gift, that although he is blessing him, that God still is the one who's in the driver's seat. God is the one who dispenses of blessings according to his will and his purposes and his counsel not because he's obligated to do exactly everything that he's asked to do it's still by God's grace and mercy that we receive anything and then number 3 notice that after Jacob receives a new name after God withholds his own name from Jacob that the that the this series or the story I should say the scene ends with Jacob naming the place where he has had this encounter with God. We don't have enough time to get into every little aspect of this, but let me just draw your attention to the way that this is laid out in the text. So, go in chapter 32 down to verse 31. I'm sorry, to verse 30. So, Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face. By the way, what is he afraid to see before this who is he afraid to see face to face? He's afraid to see Esau face to face, small stuff. Esau is nobody compared to seeing God face to face. And Jacob now realizes that. I've seen God face to face and yet my life has been preserved. Now, the sun rises uh, where he is and he was limping on his thigh So Jacob names this place where he has encountered God, where he has seen God sort of proverbially or metaphorically face-to-face. He names it face of God. And then when he leaves that place, he leaves with a very distinct, very decided limp. Why does he leave with a limp? Well, one reason is because one of the things that God apparently is doing with Jacob is that He is breaking Jacob of his self-sufficiency and his self-reliance. Jacob, you have to know that you don't beat me. You have to know that you don't win in a conflict with me. Let me dislocate your hip. But then God could have very easily, once that exchange had ended, God could have very easily touched Jacob again and healed him so that there was no sign or indication that there had ever been anything wrong with his hip. But God leaves him to go the rest of his life with a limp. One of the things that God does, you know it and I know it, if you've walked with the Lord for any amount of time, Some people refer to it as a severe mercy. That God, when He comes to change His people and to equip and fit them into the kind of people who are ready to receive and enter into His kingdom, when God encounters them, He oftentimes must humble them and yes, even break them so that He can remake them. And in that breaking and remaking particularly in those times when he does the most significant work, there is oftentimes a limp that we still walk through life with. So, you encounter anxiety or depression. You experience the loss of a family member or a close friend. You have marital difficulties. You have troubles at home, in the workplace, whatever it is. You go limping through this life, but you go limping through this life so that you're reminded day by day that you desperately need the Lord to bless you and to give you grace. You will not make it to the end of your race intact unless the Lord gets you there. And that's why in Hebrews, the passage that we read earlier, the author of Hebrews says, listen, when you encounter the loving discipline of the Lord, don't turn away from that. Let the Lord do His work and put you back together so that you can share in His righteousness. I don't care what it is that you're going through, whatever limp it is that you have, physical, emotional, spiritual, that limp is going to be used by God to keep you humble, and keep you clinging to the Lord. And that is the best thing that God could do for you. That is the best place for you to be. That is the best state for us to be in, to be desperate little children clinging to our Father for strength and grace and blessing. Self-reliant, self-sufficient people who rest on their own strength do not enter the kingdom of God. He wounds us, and He confronts us with our weakness because He loves us and because He's making us ready for something good on the other side. Bow with me in prayer. Father, how timid and fearful we are to experience the cuts and the bruises, the wounds that you inflict upon us for our good. It is easy for us to say when life seems to be going well that you are good and that you're trustworthy, but when you bring us through times of suffering and trial and testing, it is very difficult for us to remain confident in that truth, and yet we have nowhere else that we can go. We pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to keep us clinging to you and to your word and that as we look to your saving work in Jesus Christ that we would know that because even death is not sufficient to thwart your plan that the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead is going to raise us up through every trial, through every adversity and one day will raise us up from death itself to be able to enjoy endless delight with you thank you that you are preparing us for this very thing and we want to trust you for it be merciful and patient with us God we ask in Jesus name amen and he's going to lead us in a closing song to finish out let me just say before we before we close if you're here and you have been doing your own sort of wrestling but need to submit to the kindness of God and want someone to talk to or someone to work through this with, I'm going to remain down front here at the end of the service. Banks, one of our elders, will be at the door to greet you on your way out, but I'll remain down here at the front. Or, if you have never submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and you don't even know what it means to have your name changed and your destiny rerouted, I'd love to talk to you. Andy?
1: Would you stand as we respond to the message? Worthy of reverence, would you praise? Worthy of reverence, worth i Worthy, Father Creator, you are worthy. Savior, sustainer, you are worthy. Father, be glorified through us in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.